I have a dream. I have a dream. It's burning in my heart, in my soul, and in my spirit. I desire to see revival in our homes, in this church, and in other Christ churches, Christ-believing churches around us and in our country. I desire to see a movement of God that will bring restoration to relationships, healings, miracles, and most of all, salvations to hundreds and, dare I say, hundreds of thousands. I have a dream that our young people and children will experience God to such a depth that it will mark them for life, that it will captivate their hearts, that will stir within them the desire to know him more. I had a desire to see a move of God that baffles the unbelievers and causes such a curiosity inside of them that they will come to church and see what's going on. I desire to see people forming lines around this building waiting to get in. I long for a day when our ushers aren't just putting up more chairs in the sanctuary, but they're scrambling, setting up overflow rooms in this church and in Christ-centered churches in this city and in this country. I desire to see the people of God moving in all the gifts of the Spirit to see bondages, mindsets, fears broken, fear and anxiety broken over people's lives. Last week I was helping at a funeral and I was helping people come in and find places to sit. And one lady came in and she said, well, I want a chair by the door. And I looked at her and I said, I can't give you a chair by the door because the coffin's going to be wheeled in and out of that door, so I can't seat you there. I said, can I seat you over here? She started to shake and started to cry and went, no, 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 I'll just stand back here. And then there was a man that was with her, and I'm assuming it was her husband. I don't know. And he looked at me, and he said, she suffers from severe anxiety. And I looked at her, and just the fear and terror in her eyes at the thought of having to walk into a room full of people. We set her up nicely in a place where she was comfortable. But I remember looking at her and going, that ought not be. Nobody should be made to live that way. Now you might be asking, who do you think you are, Maria? Do even have that dream or desire? No, seriously. Well, of my, in of myself, I can't make this happen. I know I can't make this happen. But what if that desire that's in me is birthed and comes from the Holy Spirit? And I've spoken to many women of faith in our congregation that have a deep relationship with Lord, the Lord. And they have that, and some of them are in this room right now. And they have that same stirring in their hearts and in their spirits, and that same desire to see that revival come to the body of Christ. What if it's God, through the Holy Spirit, desiring to do this in our country? What if God is uh, asking me to bring my measure of faith, and we all have a measure of faith, um, to this situation? Romans 12.3 says, For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he should, but to think soberly according, as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. So what if I brought my measure of faith, and Karen, you brought yours, and Kelly and Ellie, you brought yours, and Rebecca, you brought yours, and Marina, you brought yours, and Karen, you brought yours, and Gail, you brought yours. What if we all brought our measure of faith together in unity? You know, Psalm, what would happen? Well, Psalm 77, 11 says, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I remember your, your, this is God's, wonders of old. How did the old revivals of the past 
come to be? How did they come to be? Well, the first one, of course, was Acts 2, 1 and 2. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one accord, in one accord, in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That day, 3,000 people came to the Lord. They had 120 people gathered to pray. 3,000 came to the Lord. They, they went to the upper room and they tarried. And to tarry means to linger in expectation, to abide. There have been many great revivals throughout history. The most recent that I can think of was in Brownsville in Pensacola, Pensacola Florida, and the Toronto uh, Vineyard. Later they called it Toronto Blessing. And both of those revivals happened in... Uh, like from 1994 to about 1999. And both of these revivals saw people get saved, healed. Instantly, drug addicts lost their desire for drugs and were set free. People were delivered from evil spirits that were ruining their lives. Many revivals are still going on today throughout the world, especially in Africa and in China, where they're being severely persecuted, but in China and in South America. But today I want to look a little bit at the Azusa Street Revival in particular because this revival is what caused the movement that brought the baptism of the Holy Spirit to North America. Over 900 million Christians can trace their roots back to this revival, and we're part of that. The Pentecostal Assemblies was birthed out of this movement because many of the uh, spirit-filled Christians that got saved at this point in time got and they started speaking in tongues, they got kicked out of their churches. So a new denomination was formed. Azusa Street Revival was birthed in Los Angeles in April of 1906. And on April 6th of 1906, the Spirit of God falls down on several people and they began speaking in tongues. This was very new to them. The movement was led by a black preacher, preacher called William J. Seymour. Um, and he had been mentored by a preacher called Charles Parham, and he was the first one that got filled with the Spirit. He mentored, mentored William Seymour, who was the catalyst that led this movement. Uh, William Seymour sometimes prayed for seven hours a day for a month on end with the expectation that God would act in his timing. Okay, ladies, we've got to say this together. God acts, God acts. in his timing. Okay, not in ours. All right, But they would get together and pray, and it was him. And I've read different reports. It was between five and seven other women that prayed with him. Okay, we're talking tops. Eight people got together that birthed and prayed that birthed this revival. God can do this with a remnant. He doesn't need a million people. He would like to have that, but he can do it with a remnant. They um, started preaching on the back porch of this one lady, um, that was part of their group, and um, they got so crowded, they drew so many uh, people that the back porch actually collapsed, and then they had to go look for a building. Um, and they were able to rent a 2,400-square-foot, broken-down old building that had been used as a horse barn just before. It had eight-foot ceilings, and by mid-May, and remember this started in April, by mid-May, anywhere from 300 to 1,500 people would attempt to fit into the building. People from a diversity of backgrounds came together to worship. Men, women, children, black, white, Asian, Native Americans, indigenous Americans, sorry. Uh, immigrants, rich, poor, illiterate, and educated. 
People of all ages flocked to Los Angeles with both skepticism and a desire to participate. The intermingling of races and the group's encouragement of women to lead was rem remarkable in 1906. It was the height of racial segregation in the United States and 14 years prior to women receiving the right to vote in the United States. So this was amazing what was happening here. Worship at 312 Azusa Street was frequent and spontaneous, with services going almost around the clock. Among those attracted to the revival were not only members of what they called the Holiness Movement, but also Baptists, Mennonites, Quakers, and Presbyterians. An observer at one of the services wrote these words. No instruments of music are used. None are needed. No choir. The angels have been heard by some in the spirit. No collections are taken. No bills have been posted. Bills are advertisement to advertise the meetings. No church organization is in the back of it. All who are in touch with God realize as soon as they enter the meetings that the Holy Ghost is the leader. I have a video clip here, and it was filmed in 1976, and it talks to two people who had attended Azusa Street and uh, witnessed the revival firsthand. So, Weren't they precious? Like, wow. Now, uh, for those of you wondering what sanctification means, well, who knows what sanctification means? Okay. Uh, for those of you, it means the act of process of acquiring sanctity, of being made or becoming holy. It is a gift given through the power of God to a person or thing, which is then considered sacred or set apart in an official capacity. So uh, basically it was they would, they would give themselves to holiness. They would eliminate things in their lives that were taking them away from, from Christ, taking them away from the word, taking them away from time of prayer. And they would step into the to praying, and they would step into reading the word, and they would make that a priority in their lives. And so that's all sanctification means, and it can, anybody can do that. Okay? Um, they, um, they refused to fill their minds with gossip, uh, negative entertainment. Again, just setting themselves apart to spend time with God, whether it's just even sitting and being quiet in the Holy Spirit's presence, which we do here every week, but um, they would do it on a daily basis or often. Now, I find it interesting um, that people aren't offended um, if someone gets up and talks about healing or miracles. But if you tell people that you speak in tongues, it can and still does offend a great many people. Like I said before, William Seymour, who led the revival, was kicked out of many churches um, and not allowed to preach because he believed in the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. Now, we need to distinguish the difference between the gift of tongues. He spoke about the gift of tongues and our prayer language, okay? The gift of tongues, which we're going to be teaching on, I think, in two weeks, two or three weeks, we're going to be teaching on the gift of tongues. It is, would come to you in a public setting. It would come on you, and, it, and you would have this unction to speak in tongues. Now, you don't have to obey the unction, so it's not like it comes on you and you're all of a sudden blurting out speaking in tongues. But if you choose to yield to it, it is always followed with an interpretation, all right? Whether you have the interpretation or somebody else has the interpretation, it's always followed with an interpretation. And then what we're talking about more so today is our prayer language, which many receive on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it is a language that is available to us to pray, uh, to edify ourselves, uh, to pray for ourselves, and to pray for others. Now, um, when um, the few ladies who first received the baptism of the Holy Spirit with um, 
William Seymour, they'd come together in the upper room, and initially, like I said, there was only five to seven of them, and they would pray for very long periods of time, but God only needed a remnant to bring a revival that now is 900 million strong. And that really encourages me. So let's go back to bringing our measure of faith. Now, Romans 12, 3 says that we all receive a measure of faith. Now, don't let the enemy tell any of you that your measure of faith is really small, okay? Um, remember Matthew 17, 20 says, I tell you the truth. If you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say uh, to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. I am convinced that no one has ever tapped into their full measure of faith that we have been allocated with the exception of Jesus. Um, so how do we tap into our measure of faith? How do we develop that faith muscle that's been put in us? Um, I can see it in others. I know when I'm with someone who has spent time developing their measure of faith. I can feel it. I can see it. I've been in rooms, in prayer meetings, or in hospital rooms, or in other rooms where someone who walk, walks in and they bring their measure of faith to its fullness. And I've, also, and I've seen them lift the room. I've also been in the same rooms where someone comes in with very, very little faith, with doubt and unbelief, and you know it because they speak it, and they bring down the room. So one question I've been asking myself lately is, when I walk into a room, what am I doing? What am I bringing? Am I bringing the room up, or am I bringing the room down? You know, Jude, um, so... I just want to give you a couple of very obvious ways that we develop our faith and Jude, our, our measure of faith. Jude 1.20 says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Okay? I pray in the Holy Spirit when I'm taking a shower, when I'm cooking breakfast, when I'm cooking lunch or dinner, when I'm cleaning my house, when I'm driving in the car. And I'm blessed. I work at a church. I can even pray at the, in the spirit at the office. Nobody's going to think I'm strange. Just, fall, you know, fall in line. But that is one way and a major way that you can develop your faith. All right? Another way is Romans 10.17 says, so that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When I first got saved, which was 1980, I cut my teeth on that scripture. It was everywhere. People, um, people just were, were, were quoting it and believing it and doing it and reading their Bibles and gleaming from the Word of God and taking in the Word of God. Again, sanctifying ourselves. And what I mean by sanctifying ourselves, I don't mean like we're going to have to be John the Baptist where we only eat honey and we grow, you know, I, you know if you have to shave, shave, whatever. <laughs> um, I don't mean that. I mean just... Walking in forgiveness, and that's a big one, because when we're not walking in forgiveness, we bring division amongst ourselves and other people, and we divide the body of Christ, all right? Um, staying away from gossip. My mother, like, there used to be this old saying, it was, if you haven't got something nice to say, don't say nothing. Saying nothing is always an option, okay? It's always an option. I had to learn that. Because I always had an opinion about everything. But saying nothing is always an option. Being kind, loving, and gentle with one another. Okay, deal with things in our lives we know we should not be doing. 
and we all have them, including me. All right? The people who were led by the unction of the Holy Spirit in the Azusa Street prayed. They prayed for hours at a time. They sanctified themselves, and the Holy Spirit was able to use them to turn millions back to Christ or to Christ, to see people healed, set free, to see restoration of families, to see miracles. I have a dream. Do you have a dream? Do you have a dream that's far bigger than yourself? What is your measure of faith? What do you bring whenever you walk into a room? When you walk into a desperate situation, how are you showing up? Now, I'm not talking about walking in and broadcasting this or that or putting people down and telling them they don't have enough faith or they've done something wrong and that's why they're in this position. No, that's of the devil. I'm sorry, it just is. I'm talking when you walk into that room, are demonic forces going, oh, no? Or are they looking at you and going, ah, no problem? Seriously, I've had to challenge myself with that. Ladies, we're going to go into our quiet time of reflection now. And I want you to think, what could happen? I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, what could happen if we all brought our measure of faith together in unity? What could the Holy Spirit do amongst us?